0: Back to page 8. What matters for us here is Lacan's claim that the production of objea, object little a, as an algebraic symbol for the experience of lack, not loss, the experience of lack, plays out around surplus enjoyment. And that's what he tells us on page 8. The production of little a Plays out around surplus enjoyment. Notice how Lacan elaborates on this point a page later on page nine. I'm looking at the first full paragraph here on page nine where he says, this is what is well and truly at stake here. Okay, all right, this is what's at stake. Here we go. You ready? It is in the discourse on the function of the renunciation of enjoyment that there is introduced the term of O object, which here again in, in the standard English translation of Lacan's work, we would have as a as object, object little a uh, instead of the O object. The surplus enjoying, surplus enjoyment, as a function of this renunciation under the effect of discourse is what gives its place To like in a market, namely, because it defines some object of human labor as merchandise, just as each object carries in itself something of surplus value. In the same way, surplus enjoyment is what allows for the isolation of little a, that symbol for the experience of lack. Again, the most important word here is going to be discourse. What Lacan is after here is a discourse on surplus enjoyment relative to OJA, and not just any discourse. He's gonna go on to say that the discourse he's after, a discourse of surplus enjoyment, is one that's gonna be clear, coherent, rigorous, and accessible, transmissible, much like the work that we do in this series. Let's see how he spells this out. If we back up a little bit and return to the intervening paragraphs between that last bit about the playing out and the bit we just read about the discourse that Lacan is after, you see him at the bottom of page 8 telling you what this discourse would look like, what he's trying to get at here. Let's take a look at the bottom of page 8. He first starts with the hypothesis. And if you're paying attention to what's happening here, what we're getting after is a way of developing theory in a Lacanian tone. And it's the kind of theory that he would suggest we pursue. And let's hear exactly how he spells this out. First comes a hypothesis. I stated, the signifier is what represents the subject for another signifier it's in itals it's an important utterance it dates from the early 60s it's not the first time he has said this check the subversion of the subject essay and check our podcast on this as well um, but here's the hypothesis i stated and pow, there's the hypothesis the signifier is what represents the subject for another signifier now lacan wants to develop a discourse around this hypothesis to really tell you what he means while he's working on this, and to show what it might look like to do the type of psychoanalytic theory that he suggests, or at least to lead up to the type of theory he suggests at the start of this opening session in Seminar 16. This, like every correct definition, namely, is required. So you've got a correct definition. There's an aspect of correctness here. It is required that a definition should be correct and that a teaching should be rigorous. So make sure your definitions are correct and that your teaching is rigorous. And in the field of Lacanian psychoanalysis, you talk about the lack of rigorous teaching. It's there. It's apparent. Um, Thankfully, there is enough rigorous stuff out there to help all of us along in what is already a pretty damn rigorous body of work. It is quite intolerable, at the moment when psychoanalysis is called on to give to something, that you must not think that I intend to elide to the crisis that traverses the relation of the student to the university. It is unthinkable that one should respond by the statement that there are things that one cannot in any way define in a knowledge. If psychoanalysis cannot state itself as a knowledge and be taught as such, it has strictly nothing to do in a place where nothing else is at stake. Now remember also what's happening here um, in the late 60s um, in France. and with student and university culture, especially as it relates to labor movements. If the market of knowledge is very properly shaken by the fact that science contributes to it, this unit of value that allows there to be plumbed, what is involved in its exchange, even in more radical foundation functions, it is certainly not an order for something that can articulate something about it, namely, psychoanalysis should present itself by throwing in the towel. I read this only as a testament to the need for a really clear, coherent translation of Seminar 16. This is a great start. I'm so grateful and thankful that this is here, but we'd really benefit from someone going through and giving us a very proper translation of this important seminar. And then we come to an important part for our purposes again establishing what type of a discourse Lacan is after with regard to surplus enjoyment so far what we know is that it's going to have correct definitions it's going to be rigorous it's going to be transmissible here's something more all the terms that may be employed in this connection whether they are those of non-conceptualization or any other evocation of some impossibility or other can only designate in any case the incapacity of those who put them forward it is not because the strategy you know what that's too good of a sentence for us not to just pause for a second what Lacan is here saying Is that anybody that wants to approach a discourse of psychoanalysis and ultimately bumps into some ineffable field of non-conceptualization and evoke the impossibility of conceptuality, perhaps, you know, the impossibility of moving forward uh, from there. Lacan just says, that's bullshit. The only incapacity on display in that moment is the incapacity of the theorist. That's a pretty snarky thing to say, Um, but, you know, you got to respect that, too. What Lacan is saying is that where psychoanalytic theory seems to bump into walls of ineffability, non-conceptualization, and the like, um, is precisely where you see the limits of that particular theorist at work, not the limits of psychoanalytic thought. It's an important point. he's developing and that's what he also wants to try and demonstrate in the subsequent pages really up until the very end of this first session on seminar 16 on my reading so we've got this notion of discourse that is clear with definitions we've got a definition of discourse that is rigorous that is transmissible and that does not accept statements of non-conceptualization as though the outer limits of this thing were to pass and and to pass us into some sort of um, ineffable, a theoretical zone. Um, Lacan just doesn't accept that. Now, that's what the discourse, he says, should look like. A discourse of surplus enjoyment should look like this. The standards in place. Now we arrive at that key paragraph we just looked at on page 9. And if you move forward with this paragraph, You see Lacan, again, starting to do the very same discourse theoretical work that he says should be done. He's trying to enact some of these very standards that he claims um, too many people uh, violate or fail to live up to, and so forth. The fun begins in the middle of page 9 with the sentence, What are we doing in analysis? And as you read this sentence, you have to think about this discourse without words that is supposedly the essence of psychoanalytic theory. On the one hand, Lacan wants to say that any bumping up against the limits of the conceptual field of psychoanalysis is really just a reflection of the limits of the individual theorist. And yet, you have to recall that what he's suggesting is that there would be a discourse without words that would be the essence of psychoanalysis. Now, how are we to reconcile this? The failure of the theorist when they encounter ineffability and Lacan's claim that a rigorous, clearly defined, transmissible discourse of psychoanalysis would also be one without words. This is partly why I suggested that the matheme. at the level of Lacanian mathematics, his algebraic system plugged into various formulas and mathemes, math would be the discourse without words that would be the essence of psychoanalytic theory. But on page nine, we get another possibility. What if the discourse without words that is psychoanalytic theory isn't only that of the theorists with all of their mathemes? Math But also more fundamentally, that of the analyzant and all of their slips, stutters, stammers, hesitations, ums, uhs, and the like. Notice how he sets this up on page nine, middle of the page. What are we doing in analysis if not establishing by the rule a discourse of such a kind? So there it is again. Psychoanalysis establishes a discourse that is rigorous, clearly defined, transmissible, so on and so forth. A discourse of such a kind that the subject suspends what on it? Precisely, his function as subject. Namely, that he is dispensed from sustaining his discourse with an I say, because it is a different thing to speak and to posit, I say what I have just stated. Now what Lacan's working here is this very classic distinction in his thought at this point between an enunciating subject and a grammatical subject. The enunciating subject is the subject that speaks, that part of us that is embodied, that is impulsive and so forth, if you wanna be simplistic about this. And then there's this grammatical subject, the part of us that is spoken, that exists at the level of language, at the level of the sentence, and so forth. Let's see how this works through his paragraphs here on page nine. The subject of the statement says, I say, says, I posit, as I do here in my teaching. I articulate this word. It is not poetry. I am saying what is written here, and I can even repeat it, which is essential, In the form in which, by repeating it, to vary it, I add that I have written it. Again, don't trip about all this. What he's trying to work at is two different aspects of the living subject. One that is embodied and that speaks, and another that is sociolinguistified, that is spoken, that exists at the level of the utterance at the level of grammar, if you will. Here then is the subject dispensed from sustaining what he states. It is then in this way that he is going to come to this purity of the word, this full word of which I spoke in a period of evangelization, it has to be said, for the discourse called the Rome discourse. So Lacan is here referring back to his first of several Rome discourses, um, and arguably the most important one from the mid-50s, his essay on the field and function of speech. This is very much the manifesto of Lacanian psychoanalysis. Um, and This is also where I I think secondary scholars um, that are philosophers in their own right, such as Alain Badiou, go a little bit off track. If you look at Badiou's lectures on Lacan, one of the things he says toward the end arguably, in order to sustain Lacan as an anti-philosopher, is that there really is no process. There are no rules of analytic technique that Lacan gives us to be passed down. And Go back and read the Rome discourse that Lacan's here referring to, and it's nothing if not a list of procedural moves to be made in analysis, replete with objectives, goals, horizons, even the type of speech you can expect to erupt. Um, So I think Badiou is a little heavy handed there, as with all strong thinkers, um, because there are procedures and rules in place. And Lacan was pretty clear about spelling those out, especially in this period of evangelization, where we see um, this major essay drop, which is, again, every bit the manifesto of psychoanalysis. It's also here that you see what he's doing with full word. What he's talking about here is full speech is... um, true speech um, as opposed to empty speech and this is also a mid-50s distinction that Lacan draws doesn't really come back to it much after that Uh, but it's this idea that the purity of word would somehow erupt from the grammatical empty utterances of an analyzant talking about themselves something else would erupt or disrupt that speech and allow for the purity of the word the full word full speech which is retroactive which is resubjectivizing to pop up which has less to do with the ego talking itself into existence and addressing that talk to another and more to do with the unconscious finding expression um, in utterances that are structural that are true and that resubjectivize Uh, the speaker. Again, though, all this really amounts to is a distinction between the enunciating subject, the source of the full word, and the grammatical subject, which is always spoken in empty speech or empty words. (coughs) It's a terrific move that he's making. It's a classic one. And in terms of theory building, you can see how Lacan is doing this. He starts by telling you what a good theory looks like. And then he dips back into his earlier work and starts scaling up an earlier model that he was working with. Here, the split between the enunciating subject and the grammatical subject. Let's be precise here. The grammatical subject is a subject that says things about itself, that states in language, many things about itself. Anytime you hear the vertical pronoun, I, I'm the kind of person who, we've been over this before, so I won't spend too much time with it. Rest assured, that's somebody trying to talk themselves into existence. That's an ego at work. That is quintessentially going to be empty speech in Lacan's period of evangelization. I, as ego, say, I'm the kind of person Who always gives to charity. There you have it. That's the grammatical subject. Um, This is a subject that is every bit an effect of language. It is effected by the linguistification of the living being. On the other side of this, you have this enunciating subject, this other part of ourselves that isn't spoken but speaks. The impulse to speak from one's body the truth of speech being right here just below your rib cage the forcing up of wind the forcing up of utterance and would allow for not just um, spouts of empty speech but also sparks of full speech here we don't say i as ego say blah 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 what we see is something different a different utterance and one that Lacan. Quotes on page 10, not coincidentally, right after he gets into the talk of full speech. Me, the truth, I speak. If the grammatical subject is an effect of language, the enunciating subject is the cause of speech. Me, the truth, I speak. That's different from talking about yourself. And it's in order to support this key hypothesis that he gave us about discourse right before he told us what would make for a good psychoanalytically conceptually sound discourse. Now, this discourse, this idea of discourse where a signifier is what represents a subject for another signifier is arguably the structural and conceptual foundation of what Lacan is going to label discourse in the future. Here it is again from page 8, but also from earlier in his work. The signifier is what represents the subject for another signifier. Here Lacan is trying to formulate it. What he's trying to work at is what he calls here a fundamental formula for this utterance. And if you've studied Lacan before, you've probably seen this formula as well. It pops up here, roughly speaking, on page 12. If you flip to page 12, you see two little formulas, two little diagrams next to each other. It's the one on the left. It's a little sloppy, it's a little different from what we usually see but here you see him trying to arrive at a formula that would help him theorize this idea that the signifier is what represents the subject for another signifier. So that S beneath S1 is the subject, the S1 above is the signifier, and the arrow here signals that that signifier S1 is representing the S, the subject to another signifier here, S2. It's an early rough formulation. I wonder how closely this diagram mirrors that which Lacan had on the board in 68 when he's working this. But I would argue that what you see happening here is the early stages of a discourse without words on surplus enjoyment, early stages. What else do you see in this diagram but the beginning of a discourse without words and, in fact, the very structural beginning of what Lacan in 17 is going to understand as a discourse, as the starting discourse of his discourses, namely that of the master. It's not coincidental here. Now, let's see if we can say a little bit about these entities, slowing down, as we like to do. That S1 that you see on page 12, this is like the master signifier. If you needed a place for the grammatical subject, you would put it there. This stating subject, the subject that's always spoken that we just addressed, this would go in the category of S1. The enunciating subject would go underneath in the S, not numbered, the S that we would usually draw with a bar through it. Here we see the subject. Here are some things Lacan tells us about this subject in 16. This is she who vanishes as soon as she appears. The enunciating subject vanishes as soon as the grammatical subject pops up. Here we see from seminar 11 forward, this theory of aphanesis. It's not the first place we've seen it. It pops up even in seminar three. But it's really in 11 that Lacan develops this idea of ephonesis. Again, the subject here is the enunciating subject. And that important part here is that it vanishes as soon as it appears. Lacan says on page 10 that it is stifled, effaced, immediately at the same time as it appears. Again, it disappears in emerging. And then he says something really interesting. He says that this subject is produced by one signifier and extinguished by another. S1 produces that subject, but the subject is extinguished by S2. Now that's interesting. That strikes me as something new here. Uh, I could be wrong, but I think it's a pretty interesting move that he's making here. It's produced by one signifier and extinguished by another. Usually when we talk about this, what we're looking at is the way that in representing the subject, the signifier petrifies it, freezes it, bars it, places that subject under erasure. As soon as it appears in language, it disappears as itself. Uh, We're going to slow down even more here. In order to understand this simultaneous movement of vanishing and appearing, of production and extinction. Let's first talk about the S1 in relation to the S2. What exactly is this stuff? The S1 in relation to the S2, the top components of this little formula you see on page 12, this is in many ways a math theme for Lacan's understanding of language. It wouldn't be a proper math theme because it doesn't have the little lozenge in there and so forth, but we could call it at least a formula. What this tells us is that the system of signifiers known as language is a differential system. It's not S1 and another S1. It's an S1 and an S2, and you could put an ellipsis at the end, three, four, five, six, seven. Language for Lacan is a differential system of signifiers, and the minimum difference that can be considered a language for Lacan is two, an S1 and an S2. Now languages are going to have way more signifiers than that, but you have to have at least two, and their relationship has to be differential. They don't equal each other. There's a non-identity between the two. And the subject is what keeps slipping out, falling away from, being thrown under, subjacere, if you read the Latin here, jacere, to throw, or to throw out. An object, for instance, is something that is thrown out. Ob, out, and jacere, to throw. The subject is something that is thrown under. Sub means under. The subject is constantly cast out and thrown under the differential system known as language. A differential system of signifiers, here represented by the relationship between S1 and S2. When Lacan marks S1 and S2 as a differential system of signifiers, let's not make any mistakes here. Or at least make as few as possible. He's not just talking about how enunciating subjects in all of their bioanimality are at once represented and effaced by grammatical subjects in all of their socio-linguistified abstractions. Lacan is theorizing language again, and he's theorizing it as a differential system of signifiers. I can't say this enough. In fact, I get tired of saying it because damn. But it's worth saying every single time. And the example, choose what you will. Today, it's been coffee cups. So let's stick with the coffee cup. If you look up coffee cup in the dictionary, you're not going to see a definition that says coffee cup. You're going to see something like a container that can hold fluids that are hot made for manual handling you're going to see in other words a bunch of other signifiers that are part and parcel to understanding the meaning of coffee cup but that are not themselves identical to coffee cup they don't equal coffee cup coffee cup does not equal round round is an attribute of coffee cup and you can have coffee cups that are square that are triangular and so on and so forth it doesn't have to be round My point is that when you look up any word in the dictionary, you're going to see a lot of different signifiers. Now, there's nothing new about this. This is Caesarian linguistics, it's Lacan adapting this, and it's something that many of you have probably already heard before. So I'll spare you the run-through, but it's important to reiterate that as Lacan is developing this discourse of surplus enjoyment, At the same time, he's operationalizing a theory of language that he's been working with for a while now. And it is, again, language as a differential system of signifiers, which allows him to say something else that's very interesting here in 16. It's on page 10, and it might just be worth us taking a look at here. It's just after he says he's going to try and work up some fundamental formulae namely to those that define the signifier as being what represents a subject for another signifier right where we are now listen to this what does that mean i'm surprised that no one has ever remarked in connection with this proposition that the result as a corollary is that a signifier cannot represent itself Of course, this is not new either, because in what I articulated about repetition, this is indeed what is at stake. Hold that thought on repetition, but just note how Lacan, as a theorist, is spinning out additional insights, additional definitions. If language is a differential system of signifiers, we can also assume that one signifier cannot represent itself coffee cup cannot represent coffee cup. It doesn't work that way. Coffee cup as a signifier points to other signifiers, the differential relation between which allows for coffee cup to attain a certain meaning. Now what Lacan is here saying is, here in 68, nobody had come along and developed that insight. Who knows if that's true, Lacan also famously said that he was often waiting for uh, you know, some women psychoanalysts to develop something with his thought, even though many of them were in the audience and had already done pretty great shit with his work. So who knows if this is true? I'd love to hear from you all on this, but it's another great move in, Lacan, in Lacan's thought. Once you get the system rolling, the theory developing, and the formula popping, you can start spinning out adjacent truths, adjacent insights. Here is just one of them. But there's more at stake here than linguistics. What's at stake, as Lacan suggests, just after this adjacent truth is a theory of repetition. And you've heard me before tell you that this is what is at stake at this stage in his thought, a robust, rigorous, transmissible theory of repetition. It starts popping on page 10. It starts popping on page 11. At the bottom of 10, we see a lot of the riffs about the subject that disappears as soon as it appears. At the top of 11, we get a pretty profound little statement on the loss of identity that attains this dis- that attends this disappearance. And then we get this statement that this is what Freud's theory about repetition designates. As a result of which, nothing is identifiable from the recourse to enjoyment in which by virtue of the sign something different comes to its place, namely the stroke that marks it. Nothing can be produced here, there without an object being lost in it. Now that is a really convoluted sentence, but it need not be one that slows us down too much. We've talked about repetition before. In fact, I dare say there's not even a series in lectures on Lacan where the topic of repetition has not come up, so I'll be brief and categorical. An entity or event, Can only be repeated at a later date. This is true of repetition. In a future relative to its present moment, when it will have become the origin of a repetition, and a lost origin at that, because it will have become no longer. Hence the disappearance of the subject as soon as it is repeated or represented. At the level of the signifier let me say it again an entity or an event can only be repeated at a later date in a future that's relative to its present when it will have become the origin of that repetition and a lost origin because the present in which that entity was is no longer relative to the present in which it is repeated. Now, if you've heard us theorize repression, you know exactly what we're talking about here. It's the symptom that marks the primal scene. It's the return of the repressed that marks the truth of repression. They're two sides of the same page. For us here, the important element is this. Repetition for Lacan is a retroactive process. An entity cannot be repeated. It's not a repeated entity. Hell, it's not even... An entity is not repeated until it's repeated is one way to arrive at this. And once it is repeated, then suddenly you have it designated as the origin of a repetition. But at the time, it wasn't the origin of a repetition. So this is the second coffee cup you've seen me with today. The first you'll recall had the picture of the cats on it, right? This is a repetition. This is my second cup of coffee, if you will. Although in honesty, you know, this is probably my eighth cup of coffee. But it's precisely by choosing a new coffee cup and establishing a retroactive connection to the first that the first by God becomes the first. There is no firstness until secondness has occurred. And again, the same is true of symptoms and primal scenes. Let's return to this bit about the enunciating subject and the grammatical subject. See if we can straighten this out. The subject as an enunciating subject Only shows up in and always vanishes before the signifier, the site of the grammatical subject. And for this reason the subject is always split between bio-animal life as an embodied enunciating being and sociolinguistic representations of this as grammatical, self-conscious, ego, and so forth. Which is why we can't ever be identical to ourselves. You heard Lacan messing with this notion of non-identity. To be a subject is to experience what Lacan on page 11 calls a loss of identity. In Lacanian terms, we usually call it a split subject. I like what he's doing here with loss of identity. Because isn't it interesting how the ego purports to provide us with just that, an identity? The identity of the subject is always lost because the subject is always thrown under, subjacere, something else, something other than ourselves, but that is also the very condition of possibility for ourselves. Here, a signifier. The subject doesn't exist without the signifier. And the signifier is the very thing that extinguishes the subject as soon as it marches it into existence now the symbol for this loss of identity in lacanian algebra is little italicized a little a marks the experience of lack notice how it works here it doesn't designate the subject For the subject, we have the S with a bar through it. What it designates is the bar that divides the subject. Enunciating subject, grammatical subject, and this third element, which is the minimum irreducible difference between those two aspects of the self. Little a is the bar that structures and maintains the differential relationship. It is the differential relationship. It is the remainder of the disjunction between enunciating subjects and grammatical subjects. That's what little a allows us to talk about. It is structurally absent from the disjunction that's constantly being managed between your enunciating subject and your grammatical subject. That's why we need a special term for it, because it's really tough to wrap our heads around. Little a is little a absent from that disjunction. It's constantly falling out from the disjunction and structuring it at the same time, which is partly why it's so damn elusive. Again, we've spent time with this, so I'm not gonna mess around too much with it. Um, You also see little a represented in that kind of rudimentary formula on page 12 we were just working with. It's the bar between S1 and S. That's little a. Little a allows us to talk about this third element that is the differential relationship here between the signifier and the subject it represents. How in the fuck does this relate to repetition? That's the question. Here it is. I want to be brief and categorical because, again, we're at the very start of this seminar because the signifier is only ever adequate to the socio-linguistic aspects of the subject, the grammatical subject, it fails at some level to encompass, to represent the bio-animalistic aspects of us, which are also there. To say nothing of the differential relationship between these two parts of self, the signifier just fails to fully represent the enunciating subject and its differential relation to the grammatical subject it never exhausts these reference and as such it always leaves something more to be represented which in turn calls for more signifiers In other words, repeated significations. What connects this theory of discourse to Lacan's more fundamental theory of repetition here is the fact that signifiers fundamentally fail in their effort to represent subjects always leaving something more to be represented. And because they leave something more to be represented, you have to ask yourself, what would it require for that something more to find its way into signification? Another signifier. That signifier, though, is also inadequate. It might represent more, but it always leaves something more to be represented, requiring another signifier the signifiers multiply. These are repeated significations, but the type of repetition that's happening here is not mathematical. It's not one equals one equals one equals one equals one. equals No. Lacan's emphasis is on a differential system of language, and that carries through to his theory of repetition. Repetition for Lacan is always repetition with a difference. Repetition as a phenomenon, it doesn't exist. Kierkegaard figured that out a long time ago. It's always repetition with a difference for all the delusions out there. And Lacan is keenly aware of this. It's part and parcel in fact of his theory of language as a differential system of signifiers. Each signifier is a repetition with a difference of the other signifiers to which it's related. So what's all this got to do with surplus enjoyment? It's the new concept that Lacan's developing here in 16. Let's see how it figures here at the end of his first session in seminar 16, as Lacan is introducing this notion of surplus enjoyment. Check out the woefully incomplete statement on page 12. Could be great, will be great, but for now, it's just kinda like an incomplete sentence. Check it out, it's right about in the middle of page 12. It begins, once any signifier whatsoever, notice this move, once any signifier whatsoever in the chain can be put into relation with what is nevertheless only an object, namely, what is fabricated in this relationship to surplus and joining, In this something that is able through the opening of the operation of the organism to take on the figure of these vanishing entities that I have already given the list of, which go from the breast to dejections and from the voice to the look, the fabrication of the discourse of the renunciation of enjoyment. This is one of those sentences that would have to go back and we'd rework it. Chop it up, um, return to the French, retranslate it, bring it forward. This is not all entirely off. If you go back and consult the French, a lot of the terms line up. Maybe this is just Lacan sounding a little bit off. There's some good shit though in here. And so I want to focus on it, regardless of the fact. Maybe even especially because the sentence, if it is a sentence, is so damn illegible. All right. Look at that diagram again on page 12. What you see as you move to the right and you see this S3 little lozenge in relation to O, oh, if you know Lacan, this is the math theme for fantasy in a sense. He's working it at a slightly different angle. What we see here in this S3 is a multiplicitous many-parted, non-identical Composite figure of the self, an S3, three parts at least in there, and it's going looking for another figure. It's searching out something else. Here represented by the O with the underline through it, which we know is little italicized A in the standard English translation of Lacan's work. S3 goes out looking for a figure of their loss turned to lack in short of their castrated subjectivation, which again amounts to a renunciation of enjoyment. They're looking for a figure of this. Now, at issue here is not the lack, not the zero that we've been talking about, the zero signaled by object delay, but instead the supplement, the one on the other side of the diagram that we developed, that might fill this hole, this constitutive void at the start of each self. So S3 is out there searching, not for their own lack, but for something to fill it. And according to Lacan, these ones are easy enough to find, once we accept that the use value of any given signifier is, in fact, its exchange value with any other. So notice what Lacan is also suggesting here at the level of Marxist theory of value. The use value of the signifier is its exchange relationship with another signifier. And once we have this system of signifiers popping, it's really easy to find replacements, supplements, ones that we can use to toss into that hole that is the constitutive void of each of us. With each renunciation or prohibition of enjoyment a figure of that enjoyment vanishes. Here he has a list of them. Renunciations of enjoyment result in vanishing figures the breast, feces, the gaze, the voice. And each of these vanishing figures leaves an opening behind. What Lacan here designates as an opening of the operation of the organism. This is key. Surplus enjoyment occurs when we find something else, a supplemental figure, to insert into one of these openings at the level of the operation of the organism. Now you know what these openings are, This limited number of mouths across the human form, as Lacan once referred to it. These are the erogenous zones. Again, we've discussed that. Let's pause there and see what we can do here. Surplus enjoyment occurs when we have found something else, symbolized in our diagram for today as little i next to little a, a something else, A plus that we can insert into one of the holes that are left behind when we renounce certain enjoyments. An example might as well help us here. <laughs> Let's stick with that oral one that we had earlier. Nursing gives way to weaning which marks a renunciation of the breast, which in turn transforms the lips into an erogenous zone, an opening that doesn't have anything to put in. This is an opening in the human form that is ready to receive something else, something more to fill it. Remember the Proto-Indo-European root Pele, meaning to fill, that gives us surplus as well as supply. The imaginary object that is the phallus is the original supply, if you will, that the surplus of surplus enjoyment repeats. (laughs) Now, this something else, something more, a plus that could be used to fill, This opening, this gap, can be any number of entities. Jouissance flits, never fully, always at the level of a fragment, again what Miller calls a crumb, from one metonymic figure for the lost object of the breast. Let's generate a list. The breast recedes. And what comes in its place? The bottle, the thumb, the pacifier, the straw, the chewed fingernail, even the hangnail as you get older, the gum that you always have in your back pocket ready to go, the sucker, the cigarette, the cocktail, all of the things that mark the metonymic passage from one little i, little a, to the next. The enjoyment afforded by each of these metonyms is surplus enjoyment. And let me say this in a categorical fashion, again, because we're just at the start here. Who knows if this shit will be true, but let's put it out there as a hypothesis. The use value of the supplement, little i, little a, belies its exchange value relative to the lack on which it operates, here, that little a. Again, we're just messing around with the theories of value that Lacan, here, is also messing around with. The use value of a supplement belies its exchange value. Relative to the lack on which it operates, the pervert knows as much. Lacan says it himself on 13. Perversion knows this shit. The neurotic can't fathom it. The pervert knows that the use value of the supplement belies its exchange value relative to to the lack on which it operates. The neurotic can't hear that. Let's think about why and the implications of this. Instead what happens is that the neurotic slips into fantasy. Here again you see a rudimentary form on page 12 of the Lacanian math for fantasy. I think it's kind of a smart one, too, because it says the subject isn't just split, it very well specifies that it's multifarious, S3 here on page 12. This of course is precisely what the ego can't handle. And so it is tempted by the logics of fantasy. And of course here we're thinking about the fundamental fantasy. If I just find the right object, if I just have one last cigarette, one last drink, Ah, I'll be whole. I'll be complete then. Just one more. Just one more. If I can just find a different house, a better house, a newer couch. Cleaner blinds, a better paint job, whatever the hell it is. According to Lacan, this is a search for something capable of soldering the subject, is what he says and making this subject into what he calls a solidary being on page 13 of Seminar 16. This, he says, would be a subject of all signifiers. This is the fundamental fantasy, is that if I just find the right supplement, I'll finally be healthy, whole, and complete. And not just that but a subject of all signifiers, he says on 13. Now, what do we call this fantastical and shit, non-existent field of all signifiers? It's the Big Other, capital O. Not only is the subject permanently, irrevocably other than themselves, but the overarching, omnivalent, totalizing entity by which they hope, beyond hope, that the opposite is true, is itself just as split, just as barred, just as incomplete, just as lacking, for all the reasons we've discussed. Even by the sheer fact that the container is not among its contents. Selves and others, big and small alike, they're all inconsistent. Inconsistent. This is Lacan's point. They are non-identical. And they are as non-identical to themselves as they are to each other. That's really the important part here. The fantastical subject of completion and the fantastical big other, they're non-identical to themselves just as much as they are to each other. But again, in the normative fields of subjectivity, where neurosis thrives, where most of us, if we're lucky, find ourselves, there, the hope is otherwise. And for Lacan, this hope, even and especially when on the apparent verge of fulfillment, is a trap. The only coherence afforded by surplus enjoyment is that of what Lacan says on page 14, is the subject qua ego. The only coherence and consistency afforded by surplus enjoyment is that of the grammatical subject, is that of the ego on display. Which brings us to the end of Lacan's opening session in seminar 16. After much work, and in fact, it brings us right to the final paragraph he's working with on page 14. Isn't it interesting? Ecclesiastes 9, nine? It's a passage Lacan's mentioned before, and it's one we've also discussed before in previous lectures, notably on the topic, if I recall, of anxiety. Here again, he's back with the book of Ecclesiastes, and not just any chapter and verse. He's got nine, nine Ecclesiastes in mind. And it goes something like this. Here's how Lacan puts it. All is vanity, no doubt. Enjoy the woman that you love. Namely, make a ring of this hollow, of this void at the center of your being. There is no neighbor if not this very hollow in you. It is the emptiness of yourself. Now, if you look into Ecclesiastes and you go to chapter 9, verse 9, that ain't exactly what's being said. Better, closer, is something like this. Enjoy whomever you love because the rest of your life with all of its working, planning, knowledge, and even wisdom, is meaningless. In other words, where you think your life has meaning, at the level of your plans, your thoughts, your insights, your efforts, professional and otherwise, it does not. This is Ecclesiastes 9.9. But check it out. This lack of meaning, this void at the center of your being, this emptiness of yourself, as Lacan puts it, is in fact, hear me now, exactly what makes life worth living. And this living worth sharing with others. And it's here, at the level of lack, not plentitude, the zeros of which we're comprised, not the ones we attempt to fill these zeros with. It's here that you find an alternate mode of enjoyment to surplus enjoyment, one that is based less on the stuff you have than on the difficult experience of lack that repeatedly sends you out in search of more, more, and more. One plus one plus one plus one. Now, If you've tuned in to the work we've been doing here at Lectures on Lacan, you know where I'm headed with this. Not in the direction of surplus enjoyment, but instead back to where it starts in search of drive satisfaction instead. A different type of enjoyment. And if you've attended any of these previous lectures, You know that I believe this to be the ultimate horizon of Lacanian psychoanalytic theory and technique. Drive satisfaction may be yours and yours alone, but its object, lack, can be shared. And the word for this sharing of lack with another person is love. This is the Lacanian theory of love that is worth pursuing, and it is precisely on this theory of love that Lacan ends page 15, this opening session on seminar 16. Let's ramp up to it and earn it the way that we've earned everything else at the start of this terrific seminar, reading on from his very wild translation of Ecclesiastes. But in this relationship, undoubtedly guaranteed only by the figure that allowed Freud, no doubt, to hold on throughout his whole perilous path, and to allow us to clarify the relationships which, in this myth, would otherwise not be tolerable the divine law that lives in its entire primitiveness, this enjoyment between man and woman, of which it must be said, this enjoyment between man and woman, between you and your partner, whether they're a man or a woman, of which, Lacan says, the following must be said. Give her what you do not have, Because what can unite you to her is only enjoyment. It is on this point, in the style of a simple, total, religious riddle, of one that is only approached in the Kabbalah, that I will discharge you today. This is how Lacan ends his opening session in Seminar 16 on the topic of love and not just any theory of love on the very precise and profoundly Lacanian theory of love as giving what you don't have let's pause there stay tuned for more soon thanks for listening to lectures on the con stay tuned for more episodes soon a big shout out to the artist jerry paper for our podcast theme music